work. And ultimately, I didn't want to commit to being good at it because it required uh, dedication, it required persistence, it required habits in my life that I really just didn't want to build into my life. It takes a ton to train for a race. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot uh, of dedication. Your body hurts all the time. And you have to sacrifice a lot for them. You basically just have to be really, really disciplined in order to like have a chance at being successful and doing these things. Uh, some of you guys know I ran a race about a month ago now. I ran a race about a month ago, and it took me uh, roughly six months to train for that race. It was six months of really, really intentional, structured uh, training plans in my life. And, and to train for these really long to make a very long story short, I, I've gotten into this thing that's called ultra marathons. And so I, I run for an unthinkable amount of time, and essentially because I want to see how far I can run, and so I just keep going farther until my body doesn't let me do it. And so for me to do these things, for me to train for these things, it requires a ton of sacrifice uh, on the part of my family, because training takes a lot of time. It causes me to sacrifice family, it causes me to sacrifice a lot of my friendship relationships and the time that I would normally be hanging out with friends, I'm out running instead. It, it causes my school and my work to experience uh, a different schedule. It's hard to make those things a priority in my life. And in the month of December, after y'all left for Christmas break, I kind of went into this phase where it was like the last really hard cycle during this training season for me, where uh, I was doing what are called back-to-backs. And this was essentially that for like a month in a row, I would go on a Saturday, and I would run something like a marathon on a Saturday. And then I'd wake up on Sunday morning, I'd go to church, and then I'd run another marathon on Sunday. So over the course of two days, you're running roughly like 52, 55, 60 miles, something like that. And each of those runs takes somewhere north of five hours to complete. And so on Saturday, I'm running for five hours. On Sunday, I'm running for five hours. In total, I've run for 10 hours this weekend. And the realization is those 10 hours that I was doing that, 10 hours that I weren't spending, that I wasn't spending with my wife, right? That's time that I had chosen to pursue something and the sacrifice of spending time with Taylor. During the holidays, I was spending all of my time running and trying to recover from running, and I was away from family. I was away from my friends, and that was the level of sacrifice that it took in that season of my life. To do races like that, it just takes you being willing to give up things in other areas of your life to be successful. There's just no way around it. There's just no way around it. Now, this concept applies to a lot of different things. It doesn't just apply to running. Take If you Want to get strong. Getting in the gym every day takes dedication, it takes discipline, it takes time. Changing your eating habits so you can accomplish those goals. If you think about it in the context of uh, music, being a musician, right? When I was in college, I bought a guitar, I thought I was going to be like uh, the next great thing guitar. Turns out I never even learned how to play it. <laughs> because it takes a lot of time, effort, and dedication to get any good. You guys could probably ask Jeremiah how long he's been playing at this point and how many hours it's taken him to get to where he is in his ability to play. You want to become a great artist. You spend a 
ton more time in the studio than you really think is humanly possible, right? And you go through projects and you go through pieces that like fail to meet your level of expectations. And then one time you finally come out with a piece that you're proud of, but it's because of all of this sacrifice and dedication outside of uh, the times that you normally think you should be in there. Think about it for computer coders. How often they fail as they build something. Time spent over and over and over again trying to program something only to have it not work, and then spend hours trying to figure out why, and then try to determine how to fix it, right? It applies in almost any aspect of our life. If we want to be really dedicated to something, it requires us to sacrifice. It costs us something. Now, the same is true for us as followers of Jesus. The same thing is true for us as followers of Jesus. If we want to follow Jesus, it requires something of us. In other words, there, there's a cost to following Jesus. And that's ultimately what we're going to explore today. In our text today, what we're, what we're going to begin to see is that Jesus, uh, we begin to see this picture of Jesus as the Messiah. It's, one of the, it's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that there is a confession of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And what follows that is Jesus then beginning to teach people what it means to follow after him as one of his disciples. Now, last week, we left off uh, with this moment of Jesus where he's in a controversy with the religious leaders of the time. And the gist of this controversy, and what Jesus was trying to get at, was that the re religious leaders were substituting human teaching for devotion to God. They were substituting human teaching for devotion to God. Now, from here, we, we read, uh, this is going to be the back end of Mark chapter 7, the beginning of Mark chapter 8. We read these stories of uh, uh, Jesus casting a demon out of a woman's daughter because of her faith. This is the Syrophoenician woman. And then after that, Jesus uh, heals a deaf and a mute man. And during this time, we're told that he travels from this city called Gennesaret, and he goes all the way up to Tyre. Now, Tyre is about a 35-mile walk from there. And from there, he goes on to Sidon, and Sidon's about another roughly 15 miles. So basically the distance from, for us walking all the way to San Antonio. That's roughly 50 miles to get to San Antonio from San Marcos. And so he's up here, and then it says that he heads back towards the Sea of Galilee, to the area of the Decapolis. And so this is another 50-ish mile walk all the way back to the Sea of Galilee. So we've, gone all, we've walked all the way from here to San Antonio, and then we've turned around in San Antonio, and we've walked all the way back to San Marcos. So, here, around the Sea of Galilee, we see another miraculous feeding story. Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000 people. And this is a really, really amazing story. It's something that we've seen Jesus do before, where he multiplies food in order to feed these crowds. And after this, he gets into a boat, he sails around for a bit, and then he lands at a, in a city on the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. So from Bethsaida, Jesus heals a blind man. And from here, he then, uh, we're going to pick up the story uh, right after this moment. This is going to be Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And it says that Jesus went all of his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So, just for context, this is another 25 miles north 
25 miles north. So essentially, for us, that's walking from St. Marcus to Austin, right? So he's gone from St. Marcus to San Antonio and back, and then now he's going from here in St. Marcus, he's going to Austin. And another way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, being Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here, Jesus asks the disciples about the common opinion of who he is. Who do the people say that I am? And some people say that it's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a great prophet who pointed forward to the Messiah, but he's been beheaded at this point in time. The others say Elijah. He must be Elijah. Now, Elijah, if we remember our Old Testament, he never died. He was taken up to heaven. And so it was always said that he would come again. And then still others claim that you're one of the prophets, that you're this uh, new version of Moses, that you're like Ezekiel, that you're like Jeremiah. You could be any of these people. Jesus then puts the question and makes it personal to his disciples. He says, well, I know what everybody else says that I am, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, the Messiah. It's a remarkably simple reply. You are the Messiah. And this confession by Peter is the first correct human statement about the identity of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's the first time that a human being understands and vocalizes who Jesus is. Peter is the first one to claim this title, this identity for Jesus. All of the hints that we've seen all throughout the first half of the book of Mark culminate in this moment. In this moment where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, by the way, this is a little tidbit that I hope is helpful. The term Christ is our translation of a Greek word. The term Christ in Greek is a translation of, a he- of the Hebrew word Messiah. Does that make sense? And so when you guys see Christ or the word Messiah, they're saying the same thing. One of them comes out of the Hebrew, the other comes out of the Greek. And so when you read these, these aren't two separate titles for Jesus, but it's one central title for who Jesus is and what he came to do. This is ultimately a glorious moment. It really is. Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who would deliver the people of the and what's really strange is that Jesus then tells the disciples not to tell anybody about him. He says, don't tell anybody about him. Now for me, that's incredibly confusing. We've built up to this glorious confessional moment where Peter knows and understands the identity of Jesus, and Jesus responds and says, don't tell anybody. The word used by Jesus here is the Greek word for rebuke. So it's not even a request, it's a rebuke, it's a correction. That they should not tell anyone who he is. There's a, there's, it's a strong way of saying that. So why would Jesus tell them to tell them? 
the rights claim that Jesus is the Messiah, wouldn't we want everyone to know that? Shouldn't everyone come to understand this? Here, here, here's the thing, though, and I think this is ultimately what Jesus, what Mark is getting at here when he speaks about what Jesus says. The disciples don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. At this moment in time, they don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the Jewish people expected the Messiah to be a figure who would come in and uh, return the Israelites to their former glory, you could say. That he would come in, that he would overthrow Roman rule, and that he would then sit down on the throne in this newly restored kingdom. But ultimately, what we come to see is that, that this is not what Jesus came to do. It's not what Jesus came to do at all. The Son of Man did not come merely to exercise authority on earth, but ultimately, in a very paradoxical way, to suffer. Although Peter and the other disciples appear to have reached the correct insight about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, that confession will be misunderstood if suffering is not central to Jesus' identity. So we go on and we read, and it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on, things, on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the first time that we read that Jesus, uh, that we read Jesus predict his own suffering and death in the Gospel of Mark. This is the very first time. And when Peter hears Jesus explain that the Son of Man must suffer, Peter has the audacity to take Jesus aside and basically rebuke him for it. I love Peter for this reason. There's like a level of authenticity and, and vulnerability with Peter that helps connect to the everyday human experience that we go through, where we claim things very declaratively to be right, and we end up being 100% wrong. I love moments like this. Clearly, Peter attaches some sort of significance to the title Messiah that excludes suffering. That's what becomes clear by his words. Jesus is supposed to be a king. He's supposed to rule. He's not supposed to be somebody who suffers. And this moment doesn't explain how or why the death of Jesus lies in the heart of God's plan for salvation. Jesus merely insists that it does. And this is shocking given the depiction of Jesus so far in the Gospel of Mark. We know that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. We've even seen that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, that he can cast out demons. And so if Jesus has all of this authority, how is it that he can suffer and die? Yet there's something, I think, that's really found in this moment about uh, how Jesus predicts his death and suffering. In this moment, Jesus doesn't identify with the righteous and the powerful. He doesn't identify with kings and rulers, yet he identifies with the least of these. He identifies with the least of these. 
Jesus claims that it's a necessity, that he must suffer, which conveys this idea of, of a divinely established plan, that this is God's plan that Jesus is, is living out. And so the necessity of this suffering isn't like some blind, cruel fate. And it's not the necessity of corrupt and imperfect human institutions. But Jesus suffers out of obedience to God. For many of us who grew up in church, and we've heard these terms, Christ and Messiah, for for so long. When I was a kid, I used to think that uh, Christ was Jesus' last name. Nobody had told me any different, right? And so it became, when you hear it over and over and over again, they're all, they always work together, right? He's Jesus Christ. So what does this Christ thing mean? It must just be a name for him. And for those of us who come to know and to understand the meaning of those terms, when we hear them all the time, and oftentimes they can uh, just become devoid of meaning because of their use. As Christians, we use the title Messiah of Christ. When we use the title Messiah of Christ, what we're saying is that God is not just a feeling of power or bliss or harmony that is this transcendental experience, but what we're claiming is that God became present to and among human beings in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. The title Messiah, the title Christ, it's not just empty words, but ultimately it reminds us of the special way in which we know God. It reminds us of the work of Jesus on our behalf. He goes on in verse 34 and it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, now these words of Jesus, which begin, If any of you would be my followers, refers to an ongoing reality of the Christian life. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus' instruction here extends to us today. Meaning, when he says, if any of you would be my followers, that includes us here in this room right now. Said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take this cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will lose it. And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Now, to be a disciple of Jesus, he lists three things that we have to do. You know, there's three things that we must be ready to do. The first of which is we have to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. Second of which is that we must be willing to lose our life, he said. The third of which is that we must not be ashamed of, his, of him or his words. So remember here for a minute that all of this instruction follows Jesus' prediction of his own suffering and death. So if we are to follow Jesus, this is what it means to follow him in suffering. This is what it means to follow him in a suffering like his. So let's talk about this vision of discipleship just here for a moment. 
Jesus' vision for discipleship has an eye towards the concrete sufferings of Christians during this time in history. The cost of following Jesus during this point in history literally meant losing one's life. By the time that Christianity became legal in 325 AD, it's estimated that up to 2 million Christians were killed for their faith. Up to 2 million Christians were killed for the faith. Now, if you look around the world today, this is a very real reality in places all throughout our world, where people are still dying for the sake of their faith. But here on the Texas State campus, this isn't our lived reality. It's not our social location. And as a result, we need to do a bit of contextualization if we begin to think about how Jesus calls us to follow him. We begin to ask the question, what does it mean to deny myself and pick up my cross here in San Marcos? What does it mean that I must be willing to lose my life for the sake of the gospel here on campus? How do I live unashamed of Jesus and of his words in my classes and in my workplace and in my teams and in my apartment buildings? What's clear is that anybody who wants to follow Jesus, who attempts to live out the truth of the gospel, must be ready to sacrifice their own self-interest. In other words, it's going to cost us something. The gospel message was not formulated for our convenience, ultimately. So that it would be easy and require very little of us to live out in the reality of everyday life. Instead, it requires something of us. It requires sacrifice. And the vision of, of discipleship that Jesus lays out in this passage requires radical dependence upon the Lord for us to live a life of obedience. We as Christians, I think they're sometimes dismissed. But we as Christians do not have to invent some fancy form of persecution complex in order to practice what Jesus is saying. We don't. There are many ways in which the gospel calls us to deny ourselves in order to be more like Jesus on an everyday basis. In the reality of our everyday life. And what Jesus does is he ultimately calls us into uncomfortable situations where faith becomes possible. They're small, but they're significant moments in our everyday lives. When we have an opportunity to share with coworker what God has done in our when we feel like we should invite that classmate to community group, but we've whipped out for the last several weeks, when we feel like we should lean in and provide care for a hurting friend, but we're paralyzed by the fear of not knowing what to say or what the right thing to do is. When we can decide to sacrificially love our next door neighbor, but they're really different from me and that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. These are moments where we can be full, where we can sacrifice our own comforts, our desire to be liked or accepted by those around us. And it's in these spaces that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to not be ashamed of him or his words. Now, this happened to me last week when I was getting my haircut. Um, I was meeting my barber for the very first time. Now, I know that, uh, at least for me, there's a special relationship with a barber 
You've got this one guy who cuts your hair over and over and over again, and he knows how to cut your hair. So the first impression is incredibly important. So I go to this barber, got the recommendation from Jeremiah, and I'm like, I want to be liked by this guy, right? I want to be liked by this guy. I, I want to build a relationship. Really, he's a really cool guy, and I just want to be his friend. So now there's an added pressure beyond, like, oh, he's cutting off 14 inches of my hair, to, like, I really want to be this guy's friend, right? And so I just kept dancing around the faith conversation. I didn't know where he was at in relationship with Jesus, and so I just kept dancing around it. I wouldn't really talk about it, but I wouldn't really avoid it, and I just was saying a lot of nothing for a while. And the reality is, in my position, sometimes when I tell people that I'm a pastor, it automatically shuts down the conversation. It happens all the time in my life, that if I come out and say that I'm a pastor, suddenly that conversation, that relationship, just like, is over and done with. And so I'm trying to connect. So I kind of like slow play, right? I'm kind of dragging it along. Dragging it along. He asks me what I do. I say, I work with students at Texas State. He goes, do you work at the university? It's like, no. So I said, who do you work with? And it's like, well, I work with a student org. It's like, okay, what's student org? And so he just keeps asking questions, right? Like, I'm trying to be so avoidant. Well, I work with students. I help mentor and, like, meet with them. And we, I do a little bit of teaching and all this. And he's, he just keeps asking questions. And finally, like, well, I'm a pastor. Like, I'm just a pastor. And when that happens, when I was finally honest, when I was finally, like, not paralyzed by my own fear, when I wasn't paralyzed by even my own shame or my desire to be cool in that moment, when I took out a step out in faith and obedience, and just to talk about Jesus in a barbershop that's full of people, it opened a door to a new level of conversation and relationship that I never could have imagined. It went deep. Like, in front of all of these people who were sitting around waiting for haircuts, there was like this moment where it went from surface level friendship to like immediately deep. And he begins to tell me about his relationship with Jesus. He begins to tell me that he feels like God has put a call on his life to work with young people. That as time goes on, he's just getting a vision from God of what this is supposed to look like. And it just turned into this amazing conversation. This taking right taking place right here in public in front of all of these people that I don't know. Now here's the thing. A story like this makes a great sermon illustration because it has a really happy ending, right? It's very inspiring. You're like, yeah, I can do that. If everybody says yes to me, it's going to be awesome. Like, it's all of my relationships are going to turn out exactly like this. But that's so not the reality of everyday life, is it? This is a cool moment, and it's a cool conversation that I got to have, but ultimately, this isn't how it always works out. Sometimes we get rejected. I got rejected a lot this morning trying to get our hearts. It was a reminder as I was preparing for this. Like, I heard a lot of those this morning. Sometimes we get made fun of. Sometimes we feel lonely or different. Sometimes we feel left out. Sometimes it takes more time, effort, and energy than we wanted to give in order to serve and to love somebody who really needs it. Sometimes it's incredibly messy because our lives are messy. But this 
is true discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is ultimately the cost of discipleship. We, too many times, myself included, I don't want to offend, and I don't want to shut down a conversation or a friendship by being too upfront about my faith. So I slow play it. And the reality is sometimes we slow play it so much that we never get to the point of sharing about what God has done in our lives. In these ordinary, everyday moments, Jesus calls us to sacrifice our comfort. He calls us to reject the fear of not being accepted. And he calls us to not be ashamed of him and to step out in faithful obedience. They don't have to be grand public declarations. They can be little, small, incremental things every day. We tend to think that giving all, all of ourselves to the Lord is like taking $1,000 in cash and just like laying on the table. Here you go, God. Here's my life savings. Here's all of it. You can have all of it. And so often what God does is he tells us to take that $1,000, to go to the bank, and to take it all out in quarters. And every day, moment by moment, it's 25 cent decisions, 50 cent decisions, $1 decisions. Giving 25 cents here, giving 50 cents here. Usually, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all of these little ordinary self-giving acts of love, 25 cents at a time. If we answer Jesus' call to discipleship, where will it lead us? The easy answer, I have no idea. To be perfectly honest, I have no idea. To answer that question, we have to turn to Jesus, for only he knows the answer for our lives. Only Jesus Christ who calls us to follow him knows where the journey ends. But what I do know is that along the way, it's going to be filled with unbound, just boundless grace and mercy. Boundless grace and mercy. Because discipleship ultimately means joy. When we talk about the cost of discipleship, oftentimes we can feel oppressive. It can feel difficult, it can feel like scary, or I don't want to, to commit that much. But the remarkable part about it is that Jesus really does bring us joy in the midst of it. He draws us into a deeper understanding of his grace and love for us as we struggle through it. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't get it right. But what we have to return to is ultimately that calm. We have to be reminded of the call. That it's more than being Christian in name, but it's called to cost us something. It calls us to sacrifice something, to give something of ourselves. The most encouraging thing I read all week was from this German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ultimately uh, lost his life or his faith at the hands of Nazi Germany. And no matter how intimidated we might feel about you, about following Jesus, and, and regardless of how inadequate we might think we are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Jesus asks nothing of us without giving us the strength to do it. And I think that that is the most encouraging and hope-filled statement about discipleship that I've read. That Jesus asks nothing of us without giving us the strength to do it. May that be true for us today. And if we continue to live our lives through our campus and throughout our lives.
God, we thank you so much that, Lord, you went before us, that you showed us the way, God, that you ultimately paid the price, Jesus, and now you call us to follow you. Lord, we don't ultimately know what the cost is, but Lord, we, we say yes to you. Maybe we say no to sin, but yes to the sinner in our lives. And God, may you lead us deeper into obedience, God. May you allow us to experience boundless joy in grace and mercy as we go throughout the process. So, Father, we submit ourselves to you and say yes to you tonight, God. We lean into where you may be calling us to go deeper, to count the cost, and to take a step out in faith as we seek to follow you.